My name is Leonard McRae. I'm a collector of night-blooming plants. When I was 12 years old, I got into the habit of getting up earlier and earlier. I loved to be alone in the kitchen by the warm glow of the agar while it was still dark. I liked the sense of being the only conscious being, seeing the stars and the moon disappearing slowly, seeing them replaced by the creeping blue of dawn. One day I got up so early that my parents were still fully dressed in the sitting room. They said, Leonard, what are you doing up so late? And I said, it's not late, it's early. And they said, well, it's only midnight. I said, leave me alone, I'm going to have breakfast. So I prepared my usual meal, which is a plate of warm fruit flies, recently killed, uh, floating around in some water from the ditch and washed down with a cup of lukewarm tar. And I decided to climb the nearby hill, which is called Butts Hill, and to comb the forest floor for blooms, because I knew there must be some secretive blooms which only show themselves at that time of night, like toadstools and mushrooms, for instance. You can only see them for perhaps five minutes, maybe 40 minutes after midnight and then they disappear stick their heads back under the, the leaves and the, uh, the grass and I was shining a torch down at the floor of the forest when suddenly I saw a beautiful purple bloom which I now know to be Mirabilis jalapa which is called the four o'clock flower and the m remarkable thing is that it was actually three hours early because this was only about one o'clock um, another strange thing about this bloom is that it uh, changes color. So as I was looking at it, it changed from purple to yellow and to green, almost like a, an advertising sign of some kind. So I leaned a little closer to look at it. A, a beautiful sight, really, something um, I can remember to this day. But just as I was crouching there, something suddenly, some kind of insect suddenly flew up my nostril I think it was my left nostril, and it seemed to go inside my head, which was really very unpleasant. It, it was making this vibrating, buzzing sound, and it seemed to be right inside my brain. It was frightening, and it was very irritating at the same time, and I wondered if it wouldn't do some damage in there. So I had to think quickly. And I looked around and I, I suddenly saw an owl standing on a branch on a tree nearby. And it was a really enormous owl, perhaps as big as a man. Although it seemed to be made of electrical tape all bound up into an owl shape and held together with elastic bands. But in the circumstances I didn't care because this insect was being so irritating, it was really driving me crazy. So I went up to the owl and by certain sign language, certain signals, I let it know that I had this insect stuck in my brain. Because I think it's something that happens quite a lot in the forest and probably happens to owls too. And the owl did seem quite sympathetic. 
or at least didn't attack me. I wasn't quite sure if my communication was getting through to the owl. I was trying to enact a kind of game of charades which would communicate to the owl that I wanted it to enter into my brain and search through all the passages and tunnels in there for the insect, destroy or even eat the insect, and then leave by the first available exit. But the owl didn't really seem to be understanding me. And in fact, when I looked a little more closely at it, I could see that the owl was grasping in one of its claws uh, an iPhone 5 and was playing a game called Flight Control uh, in which you have to land as many planes as possible without crashing them into each other. I could only assume that the owl had found this discarded cell phone on the forest floor or perhaps had attacked somebody walking down the nearby lane which has high hedgerows on the other side, uh, good places for concealment, and had made off with the, the gadget and subsequently mastered the game. And I could see that the owl had actually scored 73 landings, which was actually very good for a beginner. And playing games like that myself, I know how deeply annoying it is when someone interrupts you, so I, I, I thought that I should really hang back a little while and at least wait until the owl let out a curse and obviously had screwed up and ended the game. So I hung back a while, but I was kind of peeping over the owl's shoulder, still very irritated by this insect in my head, um, to see what progress he was making with the game. And luckily, he crashed two small prop-driven planes just at the entrance to their particular runway, just kind of down at the bottom on the right. Um, and I thought this would be my chance to introduce myself and tell him about my problem, but the owl went straight into another game and just brushed me away with his wing, very, very irritated, and I just, I clearly wasn't going to get anywhere. And the sound in my head was getting worse. It was like tonight is only much more irritating and I could actually feel the vibration in my brain. And the strange thing was that it was actually triggering certain memories and emotions, sensations, smells, tastes, all these things that were sort of dormant in my brain were suddenly being triggered by this little irritating insect. And one of the things the insect seemed to be triggering was a memory of a film I'd seen in an ethnographic museum in Zurich a film called uh, Shamans of the Blind Country by Michael Opitz. And I'd been taking like 20 grams of cocaine when I watched it.
senses because suddenly I saw there was a snake right in front of me on the forest floor. And if I moved an inch, it would strike. So I started very slowly moving my head towards the owl to try and catch its eye and hope that it would eat the snake because I vaguely remembered from biology lessons that owls eat snakes. But then something began to become apparent. The snake was, was full of rectangular shapes and seemed to have swallowed a whole bunch of clocks. It was chiming, ticking. It didn't seem very happy at all, but it did seem a bit less dangerous. I began to climb a tree. And as I climbed, the sun began to rise. And all the, the diurnal animals daytime animals came to life, waking up one by one from sleep and chasing the snake back down into its underground lair. And at the center of all the animals, the shepherd, and he was singing. I wish I had lips. Like Sister Fed Crips I wish I could run laps Like Sister Fed Crips But I'm a gardener A humble gardener There are many things I'll never do of the field he was in, and uh, it was almost as if the creepy and creeping shadows of the forest were repellent to him, which was a shame because I wanted to discuss some of the issues that had come up in Radio 4 programs. I know that shepherds always listen to BBC Radio 4 on headphones when they're doing their work, and I thought, for instance, he would have an opinion on the Methodist female hymn writers that I'd been listening to the night before, and whether they really were proto-feminists or whether their songs about devotion to the Lord were in fact a kind of uh, very unfeminist devotion to their husbands and to a kind of idealized husband in the sky. But by the time I, I formulated this even in my mind, he'd moved away and I became conscious again of being alone and of having this uh, insect still trapped in my brain.
I began to feel a certain amount of uh, self-pity. And whenever I feel that kind of thing, like nobody wants me, nobody loves me, there's a song I always sing from Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Close every door to me Hide all the world from me Bar all the windows And shut out the light Do what you want with me Hate me and laugh at me Darken my daytime And torture my night If my life were important I would ask Will I live or die? But I know the answers Life from this world to me Keep those I love from me Children of Israel are never Probably just too much Ritalin. But I did get a, a sweet sense of self-righteousness and self-satisfaction. Singing that song, it made me want to start building settlements all over the field I was walking across. As if that field were my field. As if the 1967 borders had been completely forgotten. I could put walls around my field and a ceiling over my field and then it would be completely my field where I could feel sorry for myself forever safe in the knowledge that everybody hated me including the insect in my brain an insect I was, by the way, starting to feel quite fond of starting in a sense to identify with could understand the cocooning instinct of the insect. The insect believed that my skull was in fact its homeland, long denied. And the long-suffering insect had simply taken up residence there again, as was its birthright, its cosmic due, because it was an insect beloved of the Creator. it didn't get where it is today by trying to make people like it. No, it had other strategies. Dig in, boost up, fortify. Lay your eggs, wriggle your antennae, 
go for walks. If I am shunned, sting people. Then I am shunned. Make an irritating noise. And you have lost. And I have won. It was in 1966 that a terrifying visitation came to the beach cafe where Mrs. Jean Meldrum and her mother, Mrs. Evelyn Murder, were working. I looked up because I heard this noise getting louder and louder and it was like a, just like a ball of fire. It was like orange in the middle and it was luminous white round and it rolled right along the side of the cafe, when the, the wall in the cafe and it came to the window and it came out the window. I am a guardian spirit. Never mind whose. I am here to show you a strange happening. And I came up, lifted up the way to have a look to see what this was, and the thing came out the window and batted across the front of my chest. I am a guardian spirit. All of a sudden, the whole kitchen that I was standing in just lit up luminous white. And then it just, well, it vanished. But I was sore for days after it. This man, Professor Roger Jennison, who's in charge of Kent University's radio telescope, collects such tales. I couldn't understand it. It was very frightening. And then... The screaming went on till the beach was empty, the cafe, people had all run out the cafe. They ran out like lightning. And the beach attendant, who had a wooden leg, he usually sat on a table just next to the counter. And you never saw any move so quick in all your life. Go straight to hell. Down the dark stairs. 
and into the shadowy, fearsome cellar with its terrible inhabitant. Past the coughing-like grandfather clock, a hideous old crone burst with a white hosanna. The sea roared in the room, a pig's head on a stick. It was always strange to him. And what is imagination? His drowned body hangs suspended in the green sea, alone and miserable. The limpets he eats with disgust. Imagine for a moment a schoolmaster, a pig's head on a stick, talking to him. Converse with the pig's head. I have walked by stalls in the marketplace, in the dustbins, in the burning taste of a last crumb of chocolate, in the indifferent progress of an ocean wave. The first act of movement takes us far beyond the dead point. After a short while, we start to get our breath. Interrupted line. Or if we stop several times, an articulated line. And now, a glance back to see how far we've come. Count a moment. We consider the road in this direction and in that. Bundles of lines. A river is in the way. We use a boat. Wave emotion. Farther upstream, we should have found a bridge series of arches. On the other side, we meet a man of like mind who also wants to go where better understanding is to be found. At first we're so delighted that we agree, converge us. But little by little, differences arise. Two separate lines are drawn. A certain agitation on both sides. Expression, dynamics and psyche of the line. We cross an unploughed field, area traversed by lines, then a dense wood. He gets lost, searches, and once even describes the classical movement of a running dog. I am no longer quite calm either. Another river with foggy wind, spatial wind. See the fog lift. Some basket weavers are returning with their carts. The wheel. Accompanied by a child with the merriest curls. Spiral. Later, it grows dark and sultry. Special. A flash of lightning on the horizon. Over us, there are still stars, field of points. Soon we come to our original lodging. Before we fall asleep, a number of memories come back to us.
for a short trip of this kind leaves us full of impressions. The benign Neanderthals believe he was lost. And they're invading enemies. They are terrified of water. A forest of towering beaches. They're starving and desperate. Alone and miserable. The water they sail on, past the coffin-like grandfather clock, is like the glassy clarity. Whitened by a million open daisies with foundations that creak like maggots. The sea roared in the roar. A pig's head on a stick. It was always strange to him. Alone and miserable. She is seized by a fit of laughter. On a calm sea of brilliant grass. So the familiar is strange. The happy equanimity of the first stretch. If you had asked him what is real, the nervousness, restrained. He had no idea. The caress of hopeful breezes. Before the As a child, frightened of the dark. The fury, the murder. Lying in a bed in the desert. The good cause. When he lays his hand on the bone, the leathery skin, troubling objects. But then, all at once. There was no bone, no skin. The sea roared in the room. A pig's head on a stick. It was always strange to him. Go straight to hell. The insect was still in my brain. It was still only about midday. I was getting hungry. I wanted to eat ravioli. I knew there was an Italian restaurant about five kilometers further down the little muddy lane. The lane covered in horse droppings and owl droppings and sheep droppings and fox droppings and rabbit droppings and ferret droppings stuck droppings. So I started making my way down the little lane and I saw that there were hundreds of dung beetles rolling the horse droppings and the owl droppings and the sheep droppings and the fox droppings and the rabbit droppings and the ferret droppings and the stoat droppings up the hill and making a huge barricade and when I reached the barricade crunching many of the dung beetles under my feet as I walked up the lane I had to start scrabbling with my bare hands removing first a layer of horse droppings then another layer of owl droppings then the sheep droppings then the fox droppings and it was really stinking by now and then the rabbit droppings and the ferret droppings, and then the stoat droppings. But when I got through all the droppings, I saw that the animals themselves were waiting on the other side, and I had to fight them, layer by layer, species by species. First I fought the horses, Equus ferus, and it was terrible. They kicked at me, and bit at me, and spat on me. But finally I threw the corpse of the last horse over my shoulder, 
and moved on to the owls. Strix nebulosa. And it was terrible. The owls pecked at my eyes and flapped over me and scratched me with their claws right in my face. But finally I threw the last corpse of the last owl over my shoulder and moved on to the sheep. Bovidae ovis. And it was terrible. The sheep tore off my earlobes with their sharp teeth and kicked me and rolled on top of me with their filthy stink. But finally I threw the last corpse of the last sheep over my shoulder and moved on to the foxes. Vulpies, vulpies. And it was terrible. The foxes were like wild dogs, rabid wild dogs, and they bit into me and their bite was poisonous and I felt deeply sick. But finally I threw the last corpse of the last fox over my shoulder moved on to the rabbits. Arictonagus caniculus. The rabbits were thumping and biting and scratching and eating and digging at me. Digging right into my skull. But finally I threw the last corpse of the last rabbit over my shoulder and moved on to the ferrets. Stella Putoyus. It was terrible. The ferrets were running up my trousers and down my underwear up my sleeves and biting wherever they could. Wherever they could find an archery, they would bite with their intensely sharp teeth. But finally I threw the last corpse of the last ferret over my shoulder, and I moved on to the stoats. And the stoats were easy. The stoats were a walk over. I walked over the stoats, and on down the road. And there at the bend in the road where the Italian restaurant had been, I saw a pile of rubble. And I saw the dead bodies of the manager and the waitstaff laid out by the side of the road. And I realized that the animals had got there before me. And that the Italian restaurant had been laid waste and its staff murdered by the horses, the owls, the sheep, the foxes, the rabbits, the ferrets, and the stoats I had just killed. But amazingly thoughtfully, one plate of lasagna had been laid out on the road because the manager knew that I loved lasagna and came there every day. And so before dying he'd made that lasagna and laid it in the road and somehow it had remained untouched by the horses, owls, sheep, foxes, rabbits, ferrets and stoats, which had laid that place waste. I went down on my hands and knees, picked up the knife and fork provided, and ate that lasagna, gratefully. After lunch I had a good long sleep under a large tree and eventually roused myself, stretched, crossed the road, crawled through a ditch, over a stile, picked my way amongst the country pancakes in a cow field and came to a riverbank. I was waiting there for the small ferry which served as a shuttle when I noticed a farmer with a fox, a goose and a bag of beans. The farmer looked me up and down and seemed satisfied. I wonder if you would help me, he said. I am a simple farmer and must get these goods across the river safely. 
You seem to be a gentleman of some education. Perhaps you can tell me the quickest way to ferry them, given that the boat can only hold one item per trip, and that the fox cannot be left alone with the goose, nor the goose with the beans, for the fox will eat the goose and the goose the beans. What is the minimum number of crossings I must make by your reckoning in order to ferry myself and these farm products across the river? I thought for a while and then replied, just five trips should suffice. How so? demanded the farmer. Take the fox first, I said, truncating for clarity. Left alone, goose will eat beans. Bring fox back and leave fox and goose together. Return when goose is inside fox. Carry fox across. Goose is inside fox and beans are inside goose. But goose and beans are now inaccessible and unsellable, complained the farmer. Nothing has been lost, I replied with serenity. Beans and goose have merely transmigrated to a different plane of existence. When you sell the fox at the market, increase his price by the amount you would expect to have earned by selling fox, goose and beans together. But other foxes will undercut my fox in price, objected the farmer. Nonsense, I said. You have added value to your fox by adding the protein and souls of the goose and some beans. Tell the customers that. Explain the transmigration of souls. Far from spurning fleshly cravings and renouncing all material claims on this turbulent planet, across whose slippery surface our tenure is so brief that we might as well be born directly into a freshly dug grave, I have pursued every earthly desire and lustful craving that excited me, like a foolish kitten chasing its own tail. For this reason, when my time comes to depart, rather than drifting away in dignity as would a bodhisattva, I expect to scream and bawl like a baby in the throes of a selfish tantrum, deeply irritating all the other passengers on the flight. Thank goodness that's over. They'll sigh as they watch me falling past the jet window without a parachute, my horse bellows still faintly audible and still expressing a strong desire to live. Oh, it's the little things about death that get to you. The fact that when you're dead you can't drink an orange juice with ice cubes clinking in the glass. 
the fact that death has no no decent motels where you can pull over for a few good hours of shut-eye on a freshly plumped pillow, the fact that death smells of nothing at all, not even turpentine on particle board, the fact that death has had no reviews on Metacritic despite the fact that everyone's seen the trailer, and death's deafening silence, which has long, slim fingers, but no fingers at all. Rip, 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 rip.
by foundations which in whose offense question Anderson's tale the emperor's new clothes. Foundationalists say that the child who calls the emperor naked is simply telling the truth about the situation. In Anderson's tale it is clearly stated that the clothes cannot be seen by a person who is idiotic or unfit for office. The Emperor and all his subjects accept this property of the clothes. All that is except the child. By not seeing the clothes, the child in fact proves the condition to be true. For he proves himself unfit for the office. The office of child. Because as we all know it is a part of a child's job, if we may speak of childhood as a job, a contractually binding position, which I believe it is, it most certainly is, complete with subsistence, wages, and the form of bed and board, to be utterly credulous and perpetually enchanted. What a delightful world of iridescent evergreens, of tree stumps, ferns, mountains, toadstools, pines, barns, a filigree of fine cloud and a silver sickle moon. It is not without its brooding symbols, its pockets of dread, its irresolvable mysteries, of course. But we feel at home here. Today is going to be a beautiful day. Slightly misty sunshine. Six degrees maximum. Humidity 67%. Tomorrow is going to be a beautiful day. Slightly hazy sunshine. Six degrees maximum. One degree minimum. to show you a strange happening. Oh, keep the infinite spark. Imagine the exhilaration of the air. Move me on the vent. 
found a special map spread out on a neighboring roof dramatizes the search for the escaped soul of the patient. The map represents the inhabited world. Lifting the corners and edges of this map, the shaman and his assistant, the dumb dog, peer underneath to see whether or not the patient's soul is still within the confines of this world. In the dance, the dumb dog makes noises with the bouponic weapon, a stick to which an iron bell is attached in order to frighten or to amuse the lord of the swamplands, the kidnapper of the soul. When I was a young man, I was very fond of traveling to remote parts of the world. I did this under the pretext of researching the mythologies of each country, but my first object was to reach an understanding of mankind. I've long since realized that one can only rediscover by such researches the complexity of the human soul, and that there are many doors in this fantastic structure better left unopened if one is to live in peace with one's fellows. In my old age, then, I have devoted my attention exclusively to research into the manuscripts of ancient myths and legends, preferring to ignore their wider implications and instead treat them as puzzles to be solved by unchangeable, absolute laws. It is the last refuge of an uncertain, disillusioned old scholar, and I hope the reader will not judge me too harshly for it, for, as I have said, I was once an ardent seeker after something called the truth. It was not until I sensed that I was close to this elusive phenomenon that it occurred to me that truth is really not a desirable commodity at all, but rather has something unbearably repulsive about it. I hasten to add that this conviction has none of the authority that my academic skills rely so much upon. It is the intuitive experience of an animal which draws back with a shiver from some apparently innocuous object. My first and most intense encounter with this sensation came about while I was still a student at the university in which I now lecture. 
I was collecting evidence for a theory that the mythologies of our northern countries can be divided into three general thematic groups. At that age, I still believed that such categorizations revealed more about the subject matter than the critic. I still work with this assumption, but my faith in it has long since left me. My researches brought me to the backward country of Rigara. Which in white gloves, Kafka is depressed. He is 48 now. His inspiration has deserted him. Pinched, wrinkled, smaller than ever. The days of wine and sugared rose petals were drawing to a close. There was a table covered with flasks of perfume. There was a couch heaped with cushions on which he stretched out to allow his imagination to play. Everywhere there are dead horses, their bellies inflated, their legs in the air. A poet is called for. The die is about to be cast. At once he begins to circulate in society, and those he meets are recording their impressions. After breakfast, he went shopping again for another woolen jumper. The rich and fashionable are here. The king is here. Marvellous through and through. Kafka is less impressed. His body language can be deferential, but he is no ordinary supplicant, like a second king of Italy. Two thousand years previously in the Colosseum. Strong coffee. In his fictional account of the event, Caged in by the rigging of steel cords, Kafka would be utterly destroyed. The reality was less sublime. Afterwards, he worked all day and all night in his villa by the sea, going to bed at five in the morning. Brother-sister incest. Sadism prostitution. It's divine. Domination of the skies. Maybe yes, maybe no. He needs a good dentist, capable of singing this epic. He has funny little crenellated unhealthy teeth. He is the only man I have ever seen with teeth of three colours. White, yellow and black. Intriguing to women. Repulsive to most men. For all that, for some, he is irresistible. The reality was less sublime. Not now, he says. They are not far from the front. Kafka is silent and attentive. He picks up a shard of stained glass, 
a twisted strip of lead, a carved stone flower fallen from one of the pinnacles, motoring cap, riding breeches with grey putties, and a rich brown overcoat lined with curly yellow fox fur. Its windows empty, its stones blackened. Elegant and glossy as ever, he's been studying the guidebooks assiduously. I saw. It didn't need to be true. I saw. Almost all of them. Their deaths were marvelous to him. He must have felt the cold the day before. Still desirable. The teeth of the breakwaters which gnaw at the unhappy sea. Light bursting in flashes to burn away the earth. This was terrible. It was brilliant and grand. With only a pistol for defense. Bronze skinned, with greenish yellowish eyes flecked with gold. The two men couldn't speak to each other. Kafka is depressed. He regrets not having brought wax earplugs. Are we still climbing? You look like a bronze pyre. Do you want some coffee? It's really hot. It was time for sparks to ignite desires of revolt the world over. His vases all stood empty, discreetly followed by British agents. One form of production was still lively, the manufacture of hand grenades. A heroine leaps voluntarily onto a pyre, leaving a world cauterized and pure. They were the ruthless dandies of the war, wild with lack of sleep, as lethal as an ancient Roman circus. Literally incredible, so astonishing. There was jubilation, Women dancing as though possessed. Here I am, the new Messiah. And this is his epiphany. And neither the village nor any form of habitation was visible on the sparse undulations of the moor. My friend, however, strode on with the same air of certainty as before. And when I asked him if his house was much further, he merely said, No, no, not at all. He continued, but tradition, yes, that is strong, strong but subtle. It is the private and unannounced duty of a niner father to ensure that his children grow up in the knowledge that they are niners. He will tell them so directly, in a serious moment, as soon as they're old enough to understand, and repeatedly after that, though each time the illusion will become more discreet, until it becomes after a while a certain look in the eyes, a stern but proud look in which his children will understand the importance and immensity of the responsibility they perform. This, my friend, this is the honourable tradition of the Niner Regarum. It is not something you will find in books or pictures, 
Indeed, I can only infer its existence from my own personal experience as son of my father and father of my sons. And far be it from me to make general my own private experience. No, that kind of trick I leave to the six Suddenly, the man, I was thinking of him less and less as a friend, stopped and faced me. His features were almost unrecognizably distorted, and immediately I recalled the print of the wrestlers in the hotel. Really, I must go back to my room, I said, much as I regret missing your family. But the man had clearly not heard. He leaned forward and flecks of his spittle mingled the rain now cascaded all around. His words seemed to be snatched by the howling wind and forced right through me. It is rumoured, he yelled, it is rumoured that sixers think of themselves. Here a laugh interrupted him, although it could have been the rumble of approaching thunder. Think of themselves as niners. Such perversion proves them to be sixers. The flash of lightning showed how far the man now was from me, but his words still rang as clear as before. That, my friend, is the definition of a sixer. But please, won't you meet my two lads, good niners, both? I waited no longer, but turned and ran blindly back down the road. Several times that night I thought I glimpsed the, limp, the lights of the man's house before me, and desperately changed my direction. I now attribute this to the lightning and my fever. At last, however, I reached the village and threw myself, terrified and exhausted, to the floor of the first room I entered, which was the bar. I left the village on the next train, and spoke to no one until I reached my own country. The subject of my book had to be changed slightly, but I erased all mention of the regard of Rigara and concentrated my studies on the rural areas surrounding our capital. As it turned out, however, even this modest aim was beyond me, for in a matter of months we were at war with Rigara, and I was called upon to fight. The main object